I just want to welcome you here. Thank you for those who are joining us online. We know you're there, and we're thankful for you. Looking forward to another year together. Hope you enjoyed your holiday break, and looking forward to, uh, we're jumping into a new book. And there's a couple things we want to invite you to do as we do that. Last year, you might have noticed, we, we begun anchoring ourselves in some what are traditions in the Christian church. Seasons that are not uh, requirements, nor are they marks of maturity. There are opportunities to use the rhythms of our calendar year to point our hearts to Jesus. And so we walk through Advent, something familiar for a lot of us, move towards the Christmas season, and in the new year, we celebrate Epiphany. Now, that might be new for you, and so I want to read that for you this Sunday and next, as it is a season marked in the new year, anchored in Scripture, in the season of Jesus' life. Actually, when the Magi come and discover Jesus when he's revealed to them, and what that means for us. So let me read that for you. We have recently been appreciating and the value and depth of anchoring ourselves in some of the traditions of the Christian calendar that, although are not a standard or requirement or mark of maturity, they serve to help point us to God, as God's people towards Jesus all year round. Epiphany follows Advent and focuses on Jesus' first arrival and God's revealing himself to humanity, recognized as the awaited king. One worth pursuing, one worth treasuring, and one longing for. The Magi, non-Jews, people from outside of God's people, were looking for the true Savior and found him. I hope that encourages your hearts, as many of us would not resonate as being Jewish in origin, but people who, uh, through God's grace and the person of Christ, have discovered our Savior and he us. Although Epiphany is not attached to a segment of Jesus' life where so much is yet to be revealed, taught, and understood, Epiphany for the church speaks to new things and a powerful new reality. There's no going back. Everything has changed. And although the future is unknown, a bigger, brighter, and fuller, more fuller than ever future is ahead. So Epiphany invites us to new things, even in the midst of uncertainty, that while we may not know what the year will bring, it doesn't matter because the king has come and the king is here. Uh, church, we're, we're going to invite you to do a few things in this series. One, uh, we say this a lot, but we're going to be putting some pressure on. We want you to have your Bibles. Uh, we are, in addition to encouraging you to open up the Bible for yourself, and we're talking like the old school physical Bible. Bill's got a big one, so he's got uh, two stands this morning, so he's outdoing us. So I'll bring my wedding Bible next week. Um, <laughs> We, we want you to be familiar with God's word. We also want to invite you because you're going to be hearing from different voices in this series. We value developing a church and developing speakers who can communicate the gospel. And so you're going to hear from a few uh, new or familiar voices that are maybe not up as much uh, in this series. So we're looking forward to that. So let me pray for Bill as you come on up. And, and that gives you an opportunity to open up. We're going to be in the book of Esther chapter 1 today. So Father, uh, again, thank you for Bill. Speak through him. Give him confidence and clarity. Help him to not only uh, convey the story, but why that matters to us as your people. Why so many years later, this book still speaks profoundly to us. And how it shapes us to be more and more the men and women you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Happy New Year. Um, it, is a, it is a privilege, and I do truly count it an honor to lead off the year uh, preaching. 
uh, kind of puts me in a position where I feel like uh, we're at the World Series opening game, and I'm the leadoff hitter, and I'm going, oh my goodness, talk about pressure. Um, because if I strike out, then uh, the rest of the guys are going to look awesome. They're going to look awesome anyway, okay? Uh, but um, I, no, I'm not, that I'm, uh, I'm not, uh, not thinking of striking out. That's, that's, uh, but uh, it is a privilege, and it is a privilege to open up the Word of God. It is, a, uh, it is an honor for, for those that have been called by God uh, to open up the Word of God. It is a sobering is a sobering thing because uh, we are judged harsher and uh, more strictly uh, because of what we teach. And so we want to make sure that we teach right. Um, so, uh, I think to calm my nerves, uh, let's just go to the cross and uh, talk to the king and then uh, we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, bring this word to your people. Father, this is your word. These are your people. This is your church. This is for your glory. Father, take me out of the picture. And Father, may just the words that you, uh, that you want spoken be spoken and heard and applied uh, to the lives of your people. We ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. In looking at the book of Esther, uh, we need to do a little bit of background. So we're looking at a historical book. So just to jump right into the book and start uh, expounding the truths of Esther um, is a great thing. But I think to understand the picture, to get the backdrop, to get the context of, of what is happening in the world around, we need to take a little bit of a look back. All right? So in the book of Esther, we see Jewish people in the Medo-Persian Empire. It is a, is a huge empire, and as we get into verse 1 and 2 uh, of Esther chapter 1, you'll see the size of it, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, it is huge. And so why are the people of Israel, why are they not in the promised land? Why are they not in the holy land? What are they doing? And uh, they, are, uh, they are there because of disobedience, of their rebellion and of their, their blatant sin against a holy God who had given them the law, who had given them priests and prophets, who had, uh, when they had constructed the temple, he had given them rituals and, and uh, 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 ordained steps to follow. And so it was written in black and white, I'm assuming black and white, um, here's what you need to do to receive my blessings. And yet they chose to go their own way. All right? And so, how did this come about? Well, not to say that you don't know your church history, but let's just, for, just for fun, let's just go back and see where it started. Genesis chapter 3. We have Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden, this incredible, immaculate garden. It's just it's gorgeous to look at. And inside the garden... Uh, they walk with God, they talk with God, they fellowship with God, they have the best of the best relationships that could ever be dreamed of. And yet in the garden there's this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's a problem. Because Eve saw, Eve desired, and not only, that's not where she stopped, she took. And that 
broke that relationship that they had with the Holy God. All right? So, moving on. Um, the children of Israel, through different covenants, different uh, eras and times, um, there was good times, there was bad times, there was good times, there were bad times. And we move on to uh, Genesis chapter 6, and we read one verse here out of verse 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. So man's heart was contaminated, was polluted, and it was ongoing, and it was thorough. In the Reformation, they came up with this teaching, or, uh, uh, well, just, yeah. It's called the depravity of man, or they called it the total depravity of man. Now, when, we, when you hear that phrase, that does not mean that man is as vile, as evil, as terrible as you can absolutely be. What that means is every aspect, every Adam, every molecule in your body is contaminated by sin. There is no goodness left in us. We are rotten to the core. All right? And so the flood happened, and uh, God purged the earth of the evil, and it wasn't long after, when, uh, after the flood that man started going off again, off the rails again. Okay? And so we see in... Uh, in, uh, after the Exodus, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, interesting, interesting chapter. I would challenge you to read that sometime. In Deuteronomy 28, there are 68 verses in this chapter. And interesting little uh, side note here. The first 15 verses talk about the blessings of obedience. Blessings that you can expect from following after God. Following the heart of God. And then you go from verses 16 to 68, talking about the curses of disobedience. Wow, a little bit disproportionate. But the blessings are blessings beyond description. All right? So the children of Israel are, uh, in, uh, have now moved into their promised land uh, from, from the uh, exodus out of Egypt. And Joshua has brought them in. And Joshua makes a statement in Joshua 24, 15. It says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether it be the gods your father served, beyond the, uh, served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua made a proclamation to the nation. He was going to follow the king. He was going to follow the true king, all right? And so we see then in, 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 as, the, as the history of Israel played out, there was peaks and valleys. There was peaks where they were, just had the, the fellowship with God that they, that they desired, and then the next generation went downhill, and then the next generation went up, and then the next generation went down, or one good king rose up, and then the bad king came, and then a good king came, and it was just like a pendulum. It was just back and forth all over the place. It got to the point where at one point, at, at, at a certain point, God said, okay, that's enough. Nebuchadnezzar from the Babylonian Empire came in, conquered Jerusalem, conquered the, the land of Judah, and carried the people captive into the Babylonian, uh, uh, in, into Babylonia. And so uh, they were there for a number of, uh, quite a number of years. And if you remember, uh, 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 
that uh, in one of the prophetic books, I, I, my brain draws a blank, but the context of the verse is, you will be here for 70 years, so build houses, do business, open businesses, bloom where you're planted, okay? Grow here, all right? Then we get into the book of Isaiah, now, or sorry, uh, Ezra. The book of Ezra was a compilation of uh, the book of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Hebrew, uh, in the original Hebrew scriptures, they were one book. All right, and so when you're when you're reading through the scriptures, it kind of helps set the backdrop or the background if you understand where these were placed. Okay, and so the events of history that were happening here, uh, we see in chapter one of Ezra that uh, Ezra was uh, was given the opportunity to. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, bring the, the uh, uh, exiles back into the promised land. And so in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus the king, or sometimes uh, known as Cyrus the great, in uh, Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, Cyrus thought that's just where God resides. Little did he know that God resides all over the place. And it says, but let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and with goods and with beasts and besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. So Ezra chapter 1 he set the stage. The, the first, uh, ex, uh, first group of exiles are now heading back to the promised land. Now, you have to remember, in the promised land, the temple is demolished, the walls are demolished, the city is nothing but a pile of broken concrete. Okay, It is a mess. And these people are going back to rebuild the temple. All right? Now, when they're heading back, it's not like you're going back and you pay your way. No, they're going, we'll pay your way to go back. So why wouldn't you go back? Well, some people didn't want to go back uh, because they had built businesses, they had got into politics, and they had got into uh, you know, uh, relationships with their communities. And so they had got themselves a fairly comfortable lifestyle. They did not want to pull up roots and go to a concrete jungle that was nothing but broken down concrete and rebuild this empire. And uh, so when uh, Zerubbabel, who led the first group, uh, when he left, he took approximately about 48,000 Jews. Now, there was estimated to be anywhere from 2 to 3 million Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire at the time of Ezra. All right? And so out of, four, uh, out of uh, 3 million people, only 48,000 people left. Now, in, uh, when you read the book of uh, Ezra, and I encourage you in, in your Bible reading through this year, when you get to chapter 6, stop. Okay? Stop for a bit. And then turn to the book of Esther and read the book of Esther because that's where Esther fits. Esther fits between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Okay? And so... Uh, by Ezra chapter 6, at the, or before uh, Esther starts, the temple had been rebuilt. The temple was now complete. So um, uh, Zerubbabel and the priests that were there were beginning 
to uh, reinstitute the practices of uh, the worship at the temple. Okay, so it was beginning. It hasn't completed yet, but it was going. And so uh, Ezra takes the second group of exiles, starting in chapter 7, and he takes about 2,000, give or take a few, takes about 2,000 men back. So you're going, okay, 3 million people in the Medo-Persian Empire who are living as exiles in a foreign land, but less than 2% of the people say, yeah, we want to go home. They've got themselves comfortable in the ways of the Medo-Persian Empire. They had got themselves comfortable. But there was a remnant that, that, that came back. Okay, And then uh, the interesting side note here is there was three exiles from Judah or from the promised land into exile. There's three returns from exile. So, you know, God is a God of order. He doesn't just go, okay, well, all you, all you go. Just, just go, just go. Uh, it, there, it's, it's interesting to, to see, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the contrast here. And uh, so the temple is complete, and uh, uh, Nehemiah, he takes the third group of exiles back, and if you remember from our series in Nehemiah, uh, they rebuild the walls. And when they rebuild the walls, you notice that, you remember, uh, a trowel and a sword. So uh, should you drop your sword, you still got a short, close-hand combat weapon, um, depending how sharp your trowel was, I guess, but uh, you had yourself a weapon there. And so um, then... Uh, we get to the book of Esther. So we jump in between chapters uh, 6 and 7, and we jump into the book of Esther. And uh, in the book of Esther, we are not going to see a book on moral values. Here are values you should emulate. Here are moral values that you should live by. These are principles to live. You will not see the moral values or ethics of Esther put on any corporate CEOs you must do to attain success. Okay? This is not a book that's all clean. It's got some icky stuff in there, if, if I can say such a word, in the pulpit. There is some stuff that is just not great. But you know the interesting thing is, God doesn't want everything spit and polished, you know, super clean, gleaming before he can work with it. He works with the mess and makes the best out of what mess we have. All right? And another thing that we're going to see in the book of Esther, and it's going to be very evident if we, t- if we open our eyes and look for it, we will see the hand of God move. Now, the interesting thing is about the book of Esther, it is the only book in, the, in our scriptures where the name of God is not mentioned, religious practices are not mentioned, there are no miracles mentioned, there's not even praying mentioned. Now, there is fasting, so the closest thing we could get to a religious uh, practice would be fasting, all right? And so you're going to see that. Now, the hand of God or the providence of God is what we're going to see in through the book of Esther. And so you might ask, okay, what is the providence of God? Well, let me refer to one of my favorite uh, texts of uh, biblical history, and that is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. All right? So anybody that knows me knows, okay, Westminster, okay, got it. Um, And the question number 11 says, what are God's works of providence? The answer to that question is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Let me just break that down a little bit for you, okay? 
So, if creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence is the continued exercise of that same energy. The same energy that built this world or created this world sustains this world, okay? And so, um, by it, the creator, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, involving himself in all events, and directs all things to their appointed end. God is completely in charge of the world. His hand may be hidden, but his perfect rule extends to all things. Okay? So the doctrine or the teaching of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that, uh, that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. All right, what does that mean in the context of today? Well, let's take this vague concept of uh, COVID. Oh, not that vague. Is COVID... Under God's control. Absolutely. Are the people that are suffering from COVID outside of God's control? Absolutely not. What is the purpose of COVID? From God's perspective? We don't know. We don't know the mind of God. But. Every, let me see, find my spot here. Each event, including COVID, comes as a new summons to trust God more. Now, before COVID, what did you believe about your health? I'm invincible. I got good immune system. I'm good to go. What can get me? Now, for those of us that have not had contracted COVID, you know, we could still say that. Those some have contracted COVID, they suffered some uh, very seriously. Some have not suffered uh, mildly, and some have succumbed to COVID. And dare I say, not a single person that has passed away from COVID passed away outside of God, God's control. I lost a friend of mine from work from Red Deer. He was a salesman at our Red Deer branch. He passed away from COVID. It hit me like a ton of bricks because I went into the office one day. I drove up to Red Deer and I said, so what's the news on John? And you'd think I'd just punch the branch manager right in the face. He just, and I said, what? He said, didn't they tell you? I said, tell me what? I said, no, don't tell me. He said, yeah, he passed away the week before. Horrible. But was God missing in action? No. His days were numbered. And that was unfortunately his day that his, it was time to go. Okay? So, God is in control no matter what the circumstances. So as we see, in, as we get into the book of Esther, and we've got to get moving here, um, God is in control. You will see the hand of God. I was asking Lorraine when I was uh, preparing my message, I said, can I use God's fingerprints all over it? And she kind of recommended probably use the hand of God because fingerprints kind of look, you know, you get fingerprints on a wine glass. It just looks, after a while, it looks dirty, okay? But 
the hand of God. You see the hand of God through the whole, the whole, uh, the whole story. Now, with the book of Esther and with today... Um, I'm setting the backdrop for the guys that are coming uh, in the following eight weeks. And so uh, we're not going to get great uh, practices here we need to follow. We will look at some uh, true applica- some good applications at the end here. But I'm setting the backdrop. So for those of you romantic gentlemen out here, um, when you bought your wife her diamond, I'm assuming you did, right? Okay, if not, don't put your hand up. All right? When you went to the jeweler and you said, and you put your gold MasterCard on there, so you know you got a credit limit of like $30,000, and you go, okay, I'm looking for a diamond for my wife. Either I'm going to propose, or, or wife or girlfriend, I guess, you're either going to propose or been married for X number of years. I want to bless her. She has been my rock, and I want to buy her a rock. So the jeweler just grabs a handful of diamonds, throws them on the glass counter, says, which one you want, Right? Not a reputable jeweler. A reputable jeweler is, sorry, is going to take a black velvet cloth, lay it nice and smoothly on the counter. Then he's going to take one diamond, lay it on the glass. And if there's the proper lighting in the, in the shop, you're going to see the different shades of light glisten and glow and beam out from this diamond. Why do we see this? Because of the backdrop of the fabric behind it. How do we see the glory of God in our salvation? By the backdrop of the filth that we were in. And so this is why I'm painting in chapter 1. We're painting this backdrop. So the drama of chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and all the way through chapter 10. We can see the drama of God working in the history of his people through the backdrop. Or by the back, you know, uh, reflected off that backdrop. Okay, that's where we're going today. So this is this is where this is why we're going, uh, or this is where we're going today. All right. So as we go into the book of Esther, uh, let me challenge you. I'm going to try to do it myself. Read the book of Esther every week for the next eight weeks. It's only 10 short chapters. It won't take long. If you listen to it on audio, it's about 40 minutes. But if you're a good reader, you can do it in 30 minutes. Okay? Now, I, I challenge you. Read it in a couple of different translations if you can. And if you have the opportunity, listen to it on audio. And if you're really gung-ho, let me challenge you to uh, write it. Write out the chapter that it's going to be spoken on. Because as you take the time to write it out, you're slowing down because as you read it, you become familiar with it. You can start glossing over things. Stop and start writing. You're going, all of a sudden, you're going to start noticing things that you, should, that, that, uh, uh, you wouldn't have seen just by glancing over real, uh, real quick. All right, so uh, we're going to move now into the book of Esther. And so uh, just uh, one quick little side note here, the hi- just a history thing uh, of the book of Esther. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a seven-year time frame. Okay, there's a span of about seven years. So there's a gap. So it doesn't just flow chapter one right into chapter two in quick sequence and quick succession. There is a time frame. The book of Esther takes a, approximately somewhere around 10 uh, years or so uh, to, to play out. All right? So uh, in uh, chapter one of the book of Esther, now in the days of Esther, or Xerxes is a Greek term, 
And I realize your Bibles are going to say Aserus, and I'm having a little bit of difficulty saying around. I'm going to refer to his Greek name. Aserus is his Hebrew name. And I'm going to refer to the Greek name. It's a little bit easier to pronounce. This morning on the first session there, it kind of got tongue-tied as I uh, started going here. So I'm going to refer to Xerxes. So when you're looking in your scriptures, it's not going to say Xerxes, but that's his name in Greek. All right? And so the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So can, can we get the map up on the... So uh, this doesn't show the entire empire of the Persian Empire, but you'll see in the, when we talk about the city of Susa, um, here's where the city of Susa is. Tehran in modern-day Iran is just up at the top corner just by that black dot there. Here is uh, modern-day Iraq. Kuwait is down here. So about 150 kilometers, 150 miles, I don't remember exactly uh, the uh, uh, the whether it's kilometers or miles, but anyway, about 150 kilometers or miles from the Persian Gulf. And uh, uh, this is where the story is taking place. And, uh, uh, and uh, King uh, Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in his third year, about 483. So he came into, uh, came, uh, became king in 486 B.C., and he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of uh, Persia and Media, the nobles and governors of all the provinces that were before him. So uh, we have a huge gathering. Now, uh, Herodotus, Her- I'm probably butchering his name, I apologize. He's dead, so he can't complain too much. But um, he, a Greek historian, um, now he's been known to exaggerate a little bit, but from the best sources available, um, he indicates that the Medo-Persian military was about uh, 2.5 million strong and 1.7 million infantrymen, okay? Now, the king, in his, uh, his secret service or his bodyguards, he had the cream of the crop of the military. He had the Navy SEALs of the Navy SEALs of the Navy SEALs. Okay? They were the sharpest, they were the most accurate, they were the, the, the best of the best. And his secret service was 14,000 people strong. And their prime goal was die for the king if need be. You stand in front of whatever uh, hazard there is to protect the king. All right? And uh, so... Um, And he showed them all the riches of his glory and the splendor and the pomp of the greatness for many days, 180 days. And these days were completed. The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both small and great, a feast lasting seven days in the court of the king's garden. Now, the setting that we have is the king in Susa in his winter palace. Now, it's not a cabin or it's not a cottage at the lake. It's not a cottage out in the mountains. It is a palace, an opulent palace. It is the richest of rich. And uh, so, uh, again, it's, it's, it's incredible. And so, uh, there were, and for the feast that was open to the city. Now, the city, uh, in that 180-day uh, feasting that was happening, um, Herodotus, uh, it was... It was uh, um, some of the best commentators have said it was a military planning campaign for an attack on Greece and Athens. 
uh, Darius, uh, Xerxes' father, had attacked Greece uh, a couple of times and been soundly defeated. Now, Darius was dead. Xerxes was on the throne. And he said, okay, dad couldn't do it. I'm going to do it. With a military of 2.5 million strong, um, he's going to stomp all over the, the Greeks. Um, and so, uh, uh, and again, according to some historians, in the Medo-Persian Empire, when they did military, plan, uh, military uh, planning, the, the, the alcohol was flowing. So, Harry, I don't know about military experience here. Um, I'm sure that in the, uh, uh, the uh, upper echelons of military planning, uh, they probably did have bottles of wine or maybe a, a, a bottle of whiskey or two, but they were not inebriated when they were putting their plans together. They were sober. Here they were inebriated. They were drunk, and they put their plans together, okay? And uh, sometimes they were successful, sometimes they were not, all right? So, um, and then after this 180 days, uh, the city would have been serving uh, all the, working in all the different capacities there to accommodate uh, all these military generals and uh, governors and all the people that had come in for the military planning campaign. And as a thank you, uh, Xerxes says, okay, a party for the city. He opens up the palace court and he said, okay, let's, let's go. Drinks are free, drinks are flowing, and the food, uh, when the plate's empty, another one will be replaced, they'll replace it. All right, it's, food is just in abundance. Um, we see some of the riches of the king here, and uh, we see here it says, uh, there were white cotton curtains and violet uh, hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. According to the Hebrew um, they, had, they didn't have a word for the opulent flooring that they had there. So they just go, these are the best of the best, the best that we can see of the flooring. So they just said, this kind of, it was like this. It was, it was splendor beyond imagination. Okay? It would put our uh, lives of the rich and famous, it would put their houses to shame. All right? Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And uh, according, to the, according to this edict, there is no compulsion. Now, in the Medo-Persian Empire, when the king stopped eating, you're done. I was reading an article just before Christmas about some of the traditions of the queen. Why I'm interested in the royalty, I have no idea. But I just, uh, maybe I was bored because it was cold and nothing to do. So I read this article, and the rule is in, the, in Buckingham Palace or in the, queen's, uh, in the queen's presence, when the queen puts her fork on the plate, you're done. Now, I used the illustration earlier this morning, and I'll use it again. If I had a drumstick up to my mouth, now, I doubt you would do that in the presence of the queen. But me being a Mennonite farmer, I probably would. All right? Anyway, even as you're biting down, the queen puts her fork down. You're done. You don't finish that bite. You put your drumstick down. Whether you've been busy talking and maybe sipping your uh, water, um, and you haven't even started eating, and the queen puts her fork down, well, unfortunately, you're done. If you paid $600 a plate for that meal, you're done. You had a glass of water with the queen. That's it. All right? And so the same was with the Medo-Persian. When, when the king ate, you ate. When the king drank, you drank. But he, made, he, he put this uh, edict in place. There is no compulsion. Drink when you want. Eat when you want. 
Boy, that's a buffet that you can't believe. All right? And uh, then interesting here in verse 9, Queen Vashti also had a feast, and that's it, with, her, with the women of the city. The king was given this big, long description of the opulence of his wealth. And I believe that the, the purpose of showing his wealth was to obtain the loyalty of his people. Showing, the, showing the, the riches he had, saying, look, I deserve the respect. I can take care of you. I've got the wealth to do it. And in this, uh, in this drunken stupor, after uh, seven days, uh, the heart of the king was merry with wine, and he commanded his uh, Mehuman, uh, Biztha, Harbona, Bigsa, and uh, Abakha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the uh, king in a royal crown in order to show the peoples the, uh, and the princes her beauty. Now, for you ladies, how would you like to be paraded in front of a military commanders and generals? Just, you know, your husband says, look how awesome she is. Right? No. <laughs> no hands are going up. I uh, don't expect it to. Um, the queen said no. All of a sudden, Xerxes' kingdom and the, the rule and the power that he thought he had crashed, broke like glass on the floor. His ego had been challenged. The queen said no. He demanded obedience and she said no. What was he going to do? Okay. The solution to this situation was not to go have a one-on-one. -on -one. So let me just put it this way. So for you guys, we're watching the Super Bowl or whatever, you know, just assume everybody loves football. So we're watching the Super Bowl. And there's, it's only like five seconds left and there's a Hail Mary pass to the end zone. And your receiver goes up and you're going, honey, can you bring me a Coke? And she yells back, get it yourself. And what do you do? You do like King Xerxes, right? You throw your remote at the TV. You're angry. You hit the TV just in the right spot and bzzz, it goes black and you miss the play. You storm upstairs going, what the heck? Right? Of course not, we don't. But that's, what, that's Xerxes' issue. He had an issue, and instead of dealing with it, he says, okay, princes, rulers, come with me. And uh, so the king said to his wise men, and these were the wise men that were uh, fluent in the laws of uh, Media and Persia in verse 14, says in verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has, uh, get to the right page here, she has not performed the command of uh, King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and his officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples of the uh, provinces of King Xerxes. So my wife said no to giving me a Coke. So I don't bring it to the elders board. I don't bring it to Mission Hill. I bring it to the Alberta Conference of the Mennonite Brethren Church and say, hey, I've got an issue. My wife did not bring me my Coke when I asked for it during the Super Bowl. What can we do about it? 
Well, let's make a rule. In the Mennonite church, all women, when your husband asks for a Coke at the Super Bowl, you bring your, him the Coke now and make sure it's cold and open. Okay, we'll just add a little bit. Of, all right? Make sure you do that. And so instead of dealing with it on his own, and maybe a few people in the palace might have been going, did you see, hear what Vashti did to the king? You know, and it simmers out. It now becomes a nationwide issue. Somebody stood up to the king, and he wasn't a happy camper. And so instead of dealing with this personally, he now creates a law throughout the whole kingdom and says, you must obey the wives, must obey and respect their husbands. How do you think that went? When you demand respect, it doesn't go well. All right? So, an issue that should have been dealt with alone and in person became a national disaster. Now, you, know, you might look at this and you kind of go, okay, this is ridiculous. Well, that's the purpose of the author that wrote Esther. He wrote it as a, as a partial comedy. And so in the book of Esther, when the book of Esther is read during the Feast of Pur, uh, Purim, or Purim um, it's read in its entirety. It's not read chapter 1, and then the next time, the next week, they'll read chapter 2 and chapter 3. So as, as you read it, try to read it in one sitting. You'll get the story of what's going on, the drama that's going on. All right? Um, so it, it's, it's uh, the interesting thing here is, and then as, we, as, we, close, as we, we begin to wrap up here, how in the world can we get some applications for us today in 2022, January 9th, 2022, here in Calgary, Alberta, when we're talking about Susa, uh, the citadel in uh, ancient Persia. Well, one of the applications that we can put here in place is no matter your station in life, no matter your wealth position, no matter your retirement package or retirement income or uh, what our savings are, they cannot buy us the respect and uh, fulfillment that we urgently need and desire. All the riches that we have. Now, I'm not saying we don't save, and I'm not saying we don't put money away for retirement. I'm not saying we don't, uh, you know, live to the, you know, within our means to the best of our abilities. Uh, God, you know, God blesses some with lots and some with not as much, but we are called to be faithful in whatever God has given us. But that wealth is not ours. It is God's and it's to be used for his kingdom. So all the opulent riches that uh, King Xerxes had, when he died, where was it? It wasn't in his possession anymore. It was with other kings that came after. When he died, he left as naked as he did when he came into this world with no riches. We can't take our riches with us. God gives it to him. God gives them to us for uh, use for His kingdom. Second application I want to bring out is, even though God is not mentioned in the Book of Esther, we don't see any mention of God. And as we read through it, a casual read through it, you kind of go on. Well, no idea why this is in the Bible. But even though God is absent, His hand is moving. He's moving the chess pieces on the board. He is making 
everything take place. It's a puzzle that is being put together. Now, we might see the underside of the puzzle, and we're going, okay, I don't get the picture. But God sees the top side. Everything in its right place, in the right time, is being put together. The last application, and this is my favorite. There is only one real king, and that is Jesus. We see Xerxes exerting his influence, flashing his wealth, showing his wealth, saying, respect me, respect me. I can buy your, I can buy your loyalty. I can buy uh, whatever you need. Serve me, and you will be well taken care of. Is that how Jesus came? He put his riches aside and came down to earth as a humble babe. Not born in a maternity ward, born in a stable, laid in a feed trough for you and for me. When he walked on earth, he didn't say, respect me, respect me, I'm the king. He said, follow me. Xerxes led by pushing people, saying, do this, and I will take care of you. Jesus said, come, follow me. And as we'll do shortly here, we'll partake at the Lord's table. Jesus said, follow me. And he went to the cross and laid down his life so you and I We don't have to worry about the riches because we have riches stored up for us in heaven beyond our imagination. We cannot even fathom the riches God has in store for us. But to get there, someone had to die. Was it you or me? We needed, it was our just just reward. But Jesus said, I'll take that. Walk to the cross laid down his life and said to the Father, it is finished. We now have, an, we have access to the King of Kings. We have access to the throne room of God. We have access to the resources of heaven for the walk that God has given to us to walk. Whether it be through COVID for who knows how many more years or months or weeks, or whatever case may come, whether we end our lives sick and uh, weak and feeble, or we walk into the grave, you know, we drop dead one day and we're buried the next. It doesn't matter, because here on earth, this is temporary, and his kingdom is eternal. He has created that for us. He has given that for us. So as the uh, worship team comes up, Let me pray, and uh, then after the first song, we'll, uh, as, as they're singing, come and grab your elements, and we'll partake together. Father God, we thank you for Esther. We thank you that uh, it's not the easiest book to kind of see why it's in the uh, pages of, of Holy Scripture, but Father, we see that uh, you have put it there, and there are lessons for us to learn. And so, Father, I pray you would open our hearts to, to see what you have heard, or see what you have put in there for us. And, Father, I pray that our hearts will remember what you want us to remember from this.
Father, I ask this for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.